0: a new mini-series which will run over the course of the next three weeks. It's going to be on devotion, community, and mission. And of all the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples, the ones which all the other ones follow from are the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. So the Great Commandment found in Matthew 22 is Jesus' reply when posed the question, what is the most important command in the law? And Jesus' response was that there were two. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and to love your neighbour as yourself. And then the Great Commission is the task that Jesus gave to his followers after his resurrection and is found at the end of Matthew and it's to make disciples of all the nations. And here at Christ Church Manchester, we speak about these three ideas using the terms devotion, community and mission. And after a cheeky, cheeky request to Tom who heads up the preaching at our site here. Um, I asked to switch my week so I could start with community because I love community. Um, So Tim will be preaching on devotion next week (laughs) Um, and um, yeah it's something that I'm really passionate about. So we're doing this mini-series because we are fast approaching the new Fallafield year and uh, if you don't know, if you're new here, then in September, we often get a new influx of students and people to the church. And it's a really exciting time. So we thought this was a great opportunity to just before they arrive to revisit some of the core principles that we believe as a church and remind ourselves at like, what's at the heart of what we do. So, yeah, community. We're going to start by reading from Acts 2 and looking at the early church. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to Acts 2 verses 42 to 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those were who were being saved. So as some of you may know, I grew up in a fairly small community where everyone knows everyone slash everyone's related to everyone. Um, to the extent that when I moved away from the island that I grew up on, my grand would still post us the weekly newspaper that came out. And I remember once it arrived, and the headline on the front of the newspaper read, Ian's taken a tumble. And it was a picture of Ian. And um, <laughs> the article then went on to tell the story of how a man called Ian, in one of the like the south parishes of the island, had fallen down some stairs, and it made the front page news. And um, if that wasn't enough, my grand had then annotated next to the headline, Auntie Margaret's second cousin's boy. So not only was this worthy of front page news, but I was also related to Ian, and I had no idea of it. Um, so to completely contradict myself here, I wasn't actually in community with Ian, but I was connected to him And you can be connected to someone but not in community with them. So we at the moment, as I'm sure everyone knows, we're living in a very disconnected age and we've got the continual rise of social media and the digital world and even in the recent years of COVID, in-person interactions are becoming less prioritised and despite the need for them at the moment being greater than ever. And new analysis of ONS data from the government's campaign to end loneliness found that between December 2021 and February 2022, 3.3 million people living in Britain were chronically lonely. So loneliness is all around us at the moment. And the psychologist Sherry Turkle makes this accurate observation. She says, We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our network life allows us to hide from each other, even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. I've actively come off a lot of social media over the last year or so, and, um, but I was on Facebook the other day, sorry Gen Zs, I don't get TikTok, I'm like, I hate Instagram, um, but I was on Facebook and I saw that I have over 1,000 friends on there. But that could not be further from the reality of friends I actually have. I reckon probably less than 20 of those friends on there actually know about my current well-being. And and Facebook's tagline is actually, Facebook is a social utility that connects you with the people around you. And I just read that and I thought, how cold and emotionless does social utility sound? (laughs) It's not even like a shadow of what community should be. But we are living in a generation that looks to our online community and presence to direct who we are, with whom we should spend our time, and how we should live. So what does real community look like? Not these online social constructions, not my small island where everyone's loosely related, but real biblical community. So my first point is that at the heart of real community is loving one another, As we saw in that first passage in Acts 2, the early church, they shared everything, they rejoiced together, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were in fellowship and serving and loving one another. And they were using Jesus's ministry as a blueprint for how they operated as a church. So just before Jesus went to the cross in John 13, we read about how During the Last Supper, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And culturally at this time, this was a task that was reserved for non-Jewish slaves. Too many S's. And um, it was dirty and it was a time when people walked long distances on dusty roads in sandals. And so it was customary for the host to provide water for people to wash their feet on arrival, but not during the meal as Jesus was doing here. In this moment, Jesus was demonstrating his humility, his servanthood, and his love for his disciples that he would take on such a lowly task as this. This couldn't be further from the, like the term social utility. He then gave his disciples the instruction, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another but by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, verse 34. So, this is, as I said, the blueprint and direction that they had to be a shared, loving unit. And Paul talks about the rewards and challenges of this in the New Testament. So, if you just turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, I'm going to read a passage. On this. Sorry, I've got so much to say on community. We're going to be jumping all over the place with quotes thrown at you every two minutes. Um, So, yeah, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. There is one body, but it has many parts. But all its many parts make up one body. It is the same with Christ. We were all baptized by one Holy Spirit, and so we are formed into one body. It didn't matter whether we were Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free people, we were all given the same spirit to drink. So the body is not made up of just one part, it has many parts. Suppose the foot says, I'm not a hand, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it cannot stop being part of the body. And suppose the ear says, I'm not an eye, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it cannot stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, how could it hear? If the whole body were an ear, how could it smell? God has placed each part in the body just as he wanted it to be. If all the parts were the same, how could there be a body? as it is, there are many parts, but there is only one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, it's just the opposite. The parts of the body seem to be weaker of the ones we can't do without. The parts that we think are less important, we treat with special honor. The private parts aren't shown, but they are treated with special care. The parts that can be shown don't need special care. But God has put together all the parts of the body, and he has given more honor to the parts that didn't have any. In that way, the parts of the body will not take sides. All of them will take care of one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honoured, every part shares in its joy. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. Now, in the context of this passage, Paul is challenging the Corinthians about their use of spiritual gifts as a unified church. But it's also a brilliant representation of how to love each other well when we are all different. How can we serve unified by what Jesus has done through God's love, the love that we now share in? Because Paul then goes on to speak in chapter 13 about how this love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. These passages show at the core of all our actions should be love. And as a church, we are one body composed by God. Ephesians 2 says in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I was at um, a funeral earlier this week for the mum of a friend of mine and it was a heartbreaking but beautiful service that was so well coordinated, put together and just spoke about the hope of heaven and uh, what Jesus has done and it it was amazing. And then afterwards there was a lovely afternoon tea that people had brought stuff to and we all ate together. And I was speaking to my friend at the end and I asked her, how long it took to organise it, put everything together, how, you know, how did they make it happen? And she simply replied, we've done nothing. The church has done everything. At one of their lowest points, the church took on their burden out of love for them. We are limbs and parts of a body. And I don't know if anyone here has ever broken an arm or broken their wrist maybe, and um, when you break one arm, it's not like your other arm is like, well, if he's not working, I'm not working either. Basically, your other arm does the work while your right arm will heal and rest. And it's the same in church and community. In that way, the parts of the body will not take sides. All of them will take care of one another. The author and theologian, Andrew Wilson, says this, genuine community happens when we prefer the health of the whole to the preference of the individual. What I'd really love to challenge us with today is how well are we working as one body? How well are we loving one another? Are we a group of individuals, couples and families that are casually connected? Or are we a Christ-like community that loves one another, suffers when one member suffers, rejoices when one member is honoured, is prepared to humble themselves and wash each other's feet? There is nothing casual about the way that Christ loves us. So there should be nothing casual about the way that we love each other. So how do we do this? Which leads me to my next point, prioritise meeting together. And I've got a few sub points in this one, so just bear with me. Um, Again, in the passage from Acts 2, we see the early church prioritised eating together, breaking bread and fellowship. And their meeting together wasn't a part of their social calendar. It was a part of their integral structure as a church family. In Hebrews 10, verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love uh, one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the value of meeting together in community is so vital because in community, it's where we're transformed. So while we've been looking at the early church here in Acts 2, this foundation of what community can look like, A few chapters on, in chapter 5 of Acts, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where they both, I don't know if you know it or not, but they both basically lie about where the proceeds of selling their land has gone, and immediately, one after the other, fall down dead. It's a pretty chaotic and wild chapter, and I would recommend looking at it if you haven't. (laughs) Um, But basically, the church and the community then wasn't perfect. It was chaotic, a bit chaotic. And um, the preacher, John Mark Comer, says this. He says, there is the ideal of community, then there is the messy reality of community. And discipleship is what happens in the space in between. And it's like family. I'm sure many of us can relate with desiring the ideal of family, but often being faced with kind of a messy reality of what family actually looks like. But that space in between is where we see transformation it talks continuously in the bible about how community is where we challenge one another we encourage one another and serve each other and proverbs 27 verse 17 says as iron sharpens iron so one person sharpens another you can encourage and challenge yourself but how much more rewarding and effective is it when someone challenges and encourages you accountability is where we see change and it's what spurs us on to becoming more Christ-like and good accountability happens in community so I once had an accountability partner that lived in Edinburgh and we barely ever saw each other and barely ever spoke and did it work no it did not work Uh, because I was connected to her like I said before but I wasn't in community with her and this is why it's so important for us to meet together, because with healthy challenging and accountability, we can see transformation and our inward transformation has outward repercussions. So meeting together, because when we meet together, we're transformed, is the first sub-point. My next one, it's a bit of a practical element for when we meet, it's to find your thing and serve people with it. So in the early passage where Paul talks about us all being different members of the body, he's touching on how we all have different gifts, gifts and things to bring So I'd encourage you to find your thing, then serve people with it. So your thing may be food, it may be board games, films, music, organisational skills, fixing things, anything. My thing is definitely food. I love food. I love being able to cook for people. It's like cooking is something I enjoy on a personal level. So then to be able to share it feels like an extension of that joy. And I feel like eating together is something that's really natural and um, it's quite a personable thing. And actually, I've got friends who live alone and they've told me that the parts of the day they find most lonely is mealtimes. And so I love to be able to serve people through that. There is a need all around us. And if we can't see it within our own community, how can we expect to see it outside of that? So whatever your thing is, I'd encourage that you've been given it to serve the community around you. So then my last sub-point here here is to prioritise meeting together because community can offer so much more than individuality. So Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9 to 12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And often these verses, I'm sure you probably would have heard, are used at weddings and in reference to marriage. But actually, the context of this passage here is speaking about friendship. And I think this is so relevant for how we should function as a church as well. I heard a quote a couple of years ago that has stuck with me, and um, it's from a journalist called Nikita Valerio. And Nikita is a Muslim, and she wrote this particular article. Days after there was a terrorist attack in Christchurch, New Zealand, where 50 Muslim worshippers were killed. And she was grieving for her people, but being bombarded by the media, claiming that what everyone needed was a time of self-care to recompose themselves. And she says this in the particular article. What I needed wasn't a bubble bath, but for someone to come over, help with the dishes, order some food while they watch my kids, and to let me process and grieve. And this following quote, which is Stay With Me, shouting self-care at people who actually need community care is how we fail them. Two are better than one. If either of them falls down, one can help the other out. That last bit wasn't her, that was the Bible. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so we're not called to do life alone. Genesis 2 verse 18 says, Then the Lord said, it's not good that the man should be alone. When we function in community, we have the opportunity to care for and be cared for from not just our basic physical needs, but our psychological, spiritual and emotional ones too. Community care is recognising that God is using each of us in each other's lives, not just for the betterment of our church, but also for the bringing of his kingdom. He talks, as we saw in Hebrews, about stirring one another up to love and good works. So there's three reasons why meeting together is so important. Through meeting together, we're transformed. We make space to serve and for God to use us. And because community care can go much further than self-care. So lastly, my final point. I think a large part about community is loving those that aren't like you. So often we might think, I've done this myself many a times, so I'm, I'm adding myself into this, but we might think like, oh, I'm doing pretty well community-wise. I see friend one and friend two, like for dinner once a week. And then I, then friend three and friend three's boyfriend, to be confirmed, friend four, comes and visits and helps us out on the weekend and we get a drink together. And like We can think that that is our community, but something I heard recently that really challenged me was your circle of friends is not necessarily the same as following Christ in community because we naturally surround ourselves with people who are just like us, who think like us, dress like us, enjoy the same hobbies. And our circle of friends can be very internal and personal, but it's not the same as being in community. Um, The parable of the Good Samaritan shows us that this in a way, and it talks about loving our neighbour. In the story of the Good Samaritan, we see a man attacked and stripped naked on the side of the road and left to die. A priest and Levite both pass him by, but then a Samaritan, who culturally at the time would have been unthinkable to help a Jew, comes to his aid, and it says in Luke 10, verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus then said to the crowd that he was telling this parable, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told them, go and do likewise. So being a loving community doesn't mean focusing internally, but rather extending that same love in compassion, that we show each other externally to anyone who is in need. The um, American theologian Ronald Rahlheiser said this pretty weighty quote, so yeah, bear with me. Um, Part of the very essence of Christianity is to be together in a concrete community, with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions that this will bring us. Spirituality for a Christian can never be an individ- individual, sorry, individualistic quest the pursuit of God out of community, family, and church. The God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says that he or she loves an invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with a visible neighbor on earth is a liar since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. Oh, I told my sister that quote, and she was like, it's a weighty but a greaty," And I was like, that's very true. Um, So I just encourage us all now to think for just a minute about who our neighbor in need is. Who needs to be loved and brought into community? Do they live on my street? Are they in my workplace, on my course, on my walk to the supermarket? They're most likely in all of these places I've just listed. And we can go into this next season of Fallowfield carrying this mindset. Those that are going to be coming through these doors in a few weeks' time, potentially aching for home, unsure of their course, flatmates and surroundings. And what a privilege we have to show them the love of God through community. The church of Acts 2 was, although messy at times, they shared in everything. They rejoiced together in everything. They devoted themselves together in teaching prayer and fellowship. And through this community, we see the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved.